0: what in the hell is going on what the hell is going on what the <laughs> hell is going on i don't know what the hell he's talking about you don't have to know what the hell is on it what the hell's the matter with these guys we don't know what's going on what the hell's going on who in god's name knows what it's all about
1: hi i'm danielle pletka and i'm mark Teason. welcome to our podcast what the hell is going on? Mark, what the hell is going on this week?
2: Well, this week we are marking the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, which will be this Saturday. I was in the Pentagon when the planes hit and was a witness to a lot of the things that happened early on in the war on terror. And one of the great privileges I had during my service in government was uh, helping President Bush write his commencement speech for the West Point class of 2006. So everybody who had joined the military following the 9-11 attacks was able to graduate, and he told the story of a cadet who was graduating that day named Patrick Dowdell. Why don't we go to the clip and listen to President Bush?
0: I have confidence in the final outcome of this struggle because I know the character and determination of the men and women gathered before me. We see that character and determination in a cadet named Patrick Dowdell. It was Patrick's dream to attend West Point, and he applied straight out of high school, but he did not get in on his first try. Being turned down, he wondered if he was cut out for the academy. His father, New York fireman Kevin Dowdell, encouraged Patrick to apply again. Kevin wrote letters to his congressman on behalf of his son. And he spent long hours working with Patrick on his application right up to September the 9th, 2001. Two days later, Kevin Dowdell raced across the Brooklyn Bridge with his fire rescue unit to the burning World Trade Towers and he never returned. After the attack, Patrick spent months digging at Ground Zero, looking for his dad and thinking about the dream that they had shared about his future. He was determined to fulfill that dream and in the summer of 2002, Patrick arrived here at West Point as a new cadet and today he will receive his degree and his commission ago, Patrick's mom, Rose Ellen, attended, attended another graduation ceremony at the New York City Fire Academy, where her other son, James, followed his father's footsteps as one of New York's bravest. And today, Rose Ellen is with us to see Patrick join the ranks of America's bravest as an officer in the United States Army. We live in freedom because young Americans like Patrick and all the cadets here today have stepped forward to serve.
1: Mark, I have to say, as the years pass, that voice, that voice of unity, that voice of respect for the people who fight, that voice that articulates values and morals that we care about, I miss that voice. <laughs> I, I really do. So like a lot of one, one do. of the things that I think that both you and I, Mark, were thinking as we thought about what we wanted to do to commemorate the 20th anniversary of 9-11 was to talk a little bit less about the terrorists, mm-hmm. Al-Qaeda. You know, one of the things that happens is, this is true for almost every terrible event, is that we tend to talk about the perpetrators. And God knows, anybody who listens to this podcast knows that we spend a lot of time talking about Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden and ISIS and all of the bad things that are going on out there in the world. And we spend much less time talking about the people who are affected by this, their victims. And so I think that this anniversary is a great opportunity for us to talk about the people we lost that day, what their lives meant, and their families that were left behind because... That's really what hurt us in this country. It wasn't what Osama bin Laden decided to do. It wasn't no. about those 19 hijackers. It wasn't about the Saudis or about Al-Qaeda and their jihadi mission. It's really about the Americans, the men, the women, the children, the Christians, the Jews, the Muslims, the Hindus, everybody, those Americans that we lost on that day in the Pentagon, on the planes, and of course, at Ground Zero at the World Trade Center.
2: And so we reached out to Patrick. We wanted to know what happened to him after President Bush delivered that speech, after he graduated from West Point. And turns out that he went and he served in Iraq. He served in Afghanistan on the front lines, in the very country from which emanated the attacks that took his father's life and the lives of so many other Americans. And so we wanted to find out from him what happened, hear from him about his father, about 9 11, and about his service afterwards. And so we reached out to him and he was kind enough to agree to join us. Here's our interview with Patrick Dowdell. Well, Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, Pleasure to be here. I first learned your story when I was working for President Bush, and uh, we were preparing the commencement address for West Point in 2006 in your class and got to learn a little bit about your dad. But tell our listeners about your father, who he was, and what brought him to the Twin Towers on that fateful day.
3: Yeah, sure. My family's born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. My dad was one of uh, seven. And back in in his teenage years, actually became a sandhog, So he was digging tunnels uh, as a young man, the subway tunnels and some of these things under various parts of New York City, while he then took the test to become a NYPD police officer, which was his first step into public service. And at that point, he and my mom had met. Uh, my mom was a public school teacher in Brooklyn. So, uh, you know, very blue collar. My dad was a cop for only about a little over a year before he got the call from the FDNY to join the New York City Fire Department. So, you know, at the time of 9-11, he had been on the job for 21 years and had a pretty intense career as a fireman. He started off in some busy firehouses, eventually worked in Rescue Company 2, which is part of you know, the FDNY's Special Operations Command, right? So there's only one rescue company in each of the five boroughs. So there's one for Brooklyn, one for Manhattan, one for the Bronx, one for Staten Island. And one for queens so he spent 10 years uh, at the one in brooklyn and they go to every major emergency throughout the entire borough so you can imagine that response area and how big each borough is uh, that they can be quite busy and they handle a lot of really specialized incidents so everything from you know from a collapse confined spaces anytime there's a, a major fire obviously they're going in there to support really if a fireman was to go down they'd be the ones that would be sent in to help with that scuba diving recoveries if there's a you know helicopter crash in the East River they get sent to scuba dive in so a lot of really specialized training you know he was very very proud obviously uh you know to have that job and as his career went on he uh, he studied and got was promoted to lieutenant and what happens when you get promoted is you bounce around a little bit to some different firehouses until a spot opens up and he ended up with a lieutenant position in rescue company 4 which was in Queens so that's the company he was with on 9-11 that company's out in Queens. so you know from my perspective at that time you know we didn't know that he'd be there we pretty much assumed that it was too far away it's not in their response area so once you know the call went out they called in all the rescues and uh you know they drive pretty quick and they uh they got down there before either of the towers had fallen but, you know, just to maybe take it back from there, I'll get more into his career and, and that day and everything that's kind of gone on after. But, you know, we, we live in a, in a small kind of beach community here in New York. That's where I was born and raised. And since then, my mom's still here in the house that my father built. My brother lives around the block from me. And uh, my mom's got a couple grandkids now uh, to see every day. I have two kids, uh, an eight-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son my brother has uh, has three of his own that are under the age of six. So um, you know, we're in a very tight-knit little community here and, uh, and luckily get to spend a lot of time together. And when I look back at my dad as a person, as a father, he was a very hard worker. He started working when he was a teenager in the tunnels and then pretty much never stopped as we got older. He started his own side business, basically doing hardwood flooring, construction, tile work, things like that. All self-taught. So as, as a teenager, I was the helper. Me and my brother, we would get the tools out of the basement, loading the wood into the car. And uh, you know, he instilled some of that work ethic into us from a young age. We would go to dinner once in a while, you know, in Manhattan. Sit down. His uh, his quote was always, "This is what I work all week for."
2: <laughs> That's awesome. And you know, before 9/11, he responded to the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993. He was on the I understand the search and rescue effort in Oklahoma City after the bombing there. Tell us a little about that experience.
3: Yeah. You know, again, he was uh, he was in it's funny we'd be driving even if we were driving to like my baseball games for some reason there'd be an accident like really close and it would be right there and he'd be able to get out and help somebody out of the car he just seemed to be right place right time for incidents like that all the time but um yeah he was he was there at, uh, at the first world trade center bombing in 93 uh 95 i believe when uh when there was the attack in oklahoma city He was part of the FEMA search and rescue team that was flown from New York out there to participate in the recovery and some of that stuff. And again, it goes into their specialized training of confined spaces, collapses, and how to, you know, how to safely work in those conditions. There was a diner explosion in Queens. I don't know the year, but he received a medal of valor for kind of taking off his gear and crawling into this confined space under the concrete to save a woman that was trapped under the rubble. And, you know, looking back, there's actually a famous rope rescue. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but there was a, basically a fire in midtown Manhattan where there was someone standing on the, I think it's the 13th floor out on the ledge, because the fire and smoke was so intense on the inside of the building, uh, where they lowered from rescue number one, actually, they lowered two guys off the side of the building using the same rope, which is something you never do to rescue these people. And he was a part of that rescue as well. So again, a pretty you know, storied career that we're very proud of.
1: Rightly so. I mean, it sounds like your dad was a hero long before 9-11. Yeah. And, uh, and I, you know, I love to hear your stories. Tell us a little bit about that day. I, I can't believe it was 20 years ago. In so many ways, it seems like just yesterday. And I want to I talk to you about your life and your choices. But tell us about that day.
3: Yeah, it is certainly, we use these, you know, these marquee years to measure time sometimes, right? Like mm-hmm. when you look back at what's happened in the last 20 years, you know, all these major events, you know, getting married and, and having kids and all the, the weddings, the christenings, you know, all the different things that happen, the birthday parties. And every time we're at one of those events, we always say, oh, it, it would be great to have dad here. Or, you know, my mom would say Oh, your dad would love this moment or something on 9-11 itself. I had just entered my first year at Iona College here in New York. So I went to Xavier High School in Manhattan and applied to West Point and was actually waitlisted. I did not get in straight out of high school. So I went to Iona College on a on a funny enough, I had a, a scholarship for academics, but I was also on a bagpipe scholarship because I play the bagpipes, which okay, is Okay, that's kind the of first unusual.
1: that's the first we've ever heard of that. <laughs> but good for you. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> and it's funny cuz I still to this day, I play the back place with the FDNY pipes and drums along with my brother. So we could chat about that. But yeah, so I went to Iona and I was in my dorm room. Amelia as a freshman. My brother's birthday is September 10th. So we were home for his birthday that weekend, right? So September 11th was on a Tuesday. I came home from basically what was my first week or two of college and came home for his birthday. And my dad was actually saying, like, we need to do these steps to reapply to West Point. And we had a notebook that he made me keep and, he was, you know, we got to make sure you do this, make sure you do that. And we spent that weekend together, we had a birthday dinner. And that Sunday, he took me back up to college with a buddy of mine and dropped us off. And it was pretty, you know, the pretty typical, all right, you know, love you, see you soon, I'll talk to you next week. He was going into the firehouse on Monday and working Monday into Tuesday. I don't remember, I don't think I spoke to him again after that moment. I know he had called my mom the night of the 10th, I think, and talked to my brother James and said, happy birthday. And, uh, you know, was working, and we didn't hear from him. Uh, We heard from some guys from the firehouse that morning, like, hey, they did go to Ground Zero, but we don't really know what the status is just yet. I got home from college, uh, you know, the next day or two because everything was locked down. My brother had to get out of the city from high school. He made his way to a friend who got into Staten Island on the ferry, you know, a lot of kind of shuffling around at the time. But, you know, I called my mom that night and just said, any, any word?" you know, we hear from dad and was like, no, not yet. What we always talk about is how we held on to hope for quite a long time that maybe there's a void that they're under. Maybe they were evacuated to a, a hospital because, you know, we didn't have communication with the cell phones and all those things were down, and we didn't even have a cell phone at the time. And uh, just anytime time the door opened, everyone would turn and look to see if it was him walking in. So we did hold off on, I think, the reality. And my mom says she knew, but I think me and my brother were like, well, maybe it's not as bad as we think. So ultimately, it was like, yeah, we, we, you know, we know for sure that Kevin's missing.
2: So you spent, as I understand it, you spent months at Ground Zero after the uh bombing like digging through the rubble and helping with the rescue efforts tell us what that was like
3: you know i was uh, i was 18 years old
2: at the time and when we knew that he
3: was uh missing or, or gone i felt like i had to step up right and be strong for my mom and for my brother and the the guys from the rescue four from my dad's firehouse were immediately just there 24 7. just amazingly just never were not there someone was always there always digging always reporting back on you know what they were seeing and it came to where we were finding folks we weren't we were finding remains of different people and i said i have to you know i have to be down there if we do find them i want to be the one to carry them out the routine was to drape a flag over the stokes basket and uh you know salute and carry them out to an ambulance and then take them to the morgue and i said if if that opportunity is there like I, i obviously want to be a part of it so i started going down a lot with those firemen from the firehouse and uh you know I felt very good in the sense that I had something to focus on. I had something that I felt was positive. I felt like I was doing the right thing. I was in the right place uh, where I needed to be. Yeah. So I spent the next couple months basically doing that with them. Learned a lot and really started to get a feel for how the operation worked and what we needed to do. And luckily we were able to return some people back the remains, but uh, we never found my father's remains. Someone right after, man, around, I think, October of, of 2001 said, hey, I, I found a Halligan, which is, you know, a fireman's tool. It's a, a prying tool, essentially. And um, the Halligan was blue, which is typically for rescue, and it had a welded KD and an R4 on it. So Kevin Dowdell Rescue 4. So it found its way back to us. And that's the only memento, you know, or thing that we have from him from that day. To us, it was just amazing that something he was literally holding that day made it back to us, and unfortunately, we didn't get anything else.
1: I'm sorry that you weren't able to find your dad in that effort, but it does sound to me like you've, you've gotten so much more from him and so much more from his legacy. It's incredibly admirable. I want to hear a little bit about West Point. So you didn't get into West Point. You got whitelisted. listed your dad counseled you to apply again. What happened?
3: Yeah, it worked out, right? So the way I look at it, I was lucky in the sense that I didn't get in that year because I got the opportunity to work at Ground Zero that whole time and to be able to be a little bit more flexible with being home from my mom. And, and of course, I mean, we had hundreds of funerals and, and memorials and wakes and things like that, that we were constantly going to. Again, as a bagpiper, I ended up, Uh, They needed guys, right? So they had, at times, 25 different funerals going on on the same day. Every one of those gets a piper. I mean, we we always make sure we send them off the right way. So they needed bodies, essentially, to cover that spread on the lot. So I started doing that, especially for guys that I knew or that were really close with my mom and dad. And, uh, you know, it carried me through those times, those weekends, and, uh, you know, oftentimes a lot of the funerals we got together with our friends and family, and it became kind of a bond that you have with those people from from doing that. If I was at West Point, I wouldn't have been able to do those things either. So I'm, I am kind of grateful uh, of that. But yeah, so I, I reapplied throughout that time while I was working at the site. I had a great admissions officer. At the time, I had my dad's old cell phone. I would call home from my mom just to give her, you know, an update if anything was happening at Ground Zero. But I'd also call my my admissions director and say, hey, I'm Ground Zero, so if it's loud, I apologize, but I just want to let you know I, I'm mailing in, you know, whatever form today, and my essays are done, you know, and uh, I kind of managed it throughout that time, and I got in and reported in July of 2002. So, you know, went into what they call beast barracks, which is the, uh, you know, the cadet basic training, and set on my West Point journey. Pretty daunting at the time, but I felt like at that moment in time I was, I was ready for anything. I was kind of callous to, uh, you know, to some of the... Uh, the hardships if you will of uh, of going away and you know the timing was was okay to, to kick off that journey but west point's its own little crucible and uh it, it wasn't the easiest adjustment uh, <laughs> once i got in and once i got there i definitely struggled a little bit you know the the rigor the discipline the uh the schedule that you're on you know it's a lot for a young student uh, who's expecting a college experience to get there and and kind of <laughs> jump into it with both feet but I look back, and I'm appreciative of the experience, and I'm really, really, really glad that I did it. But we always kind of joke that it's a great place to be from, not always a great place to be.
2: Well, I I got to attend your graduation with President Bush, and you were in the, uh, I guess, the 9-11 class, the first class that graduated, uh, people who had entered the academy after 9-11 and were graduating to go off and fight the War on Terror. President Bush told your story during the commencement (coughs) address. Tell us what happened after that. I understand you served both in Iraq and in Afghanistan.
3: That's correct. Yeah. So it was an absolute thrill. Well, first off, when you're always worried about not making it to graduation day and you get there, it's a pretty good feeling. So <laughs> I was ecstatic, as was my family, that we were there that day. And I didn't know that, you know, what was going to transpire with the actual commencement speech itself. Obviously, someone had reached out and just said, hey, is it okay? And can we do this? And got a couple of details, and that was it. So as you're sitting there, it's pretty surreal to just be there in your full dress uniform, getting ready to, you know, to throw your hat in the air. Then to hear President Bush mention my name was obviously even more of a thrill. So it's something I've never forgotten. And I appreciate you know, your part in that, uh, in that speech as well for making it memorable for us. But yeah, so you know, commissioned, was commissioned to field artillery branch and uh, went off to some training at uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And, uh, you know, I was there for just under a year before I got to my first duty station at Fort Hood, Texas. Uh, so I signed the 41st Fire's Brigade to start and then with the 4th Infantry Division. deployed to Iraq from 2008 to 2009 in Baghdad as a platoon leader. You know, we didn't have an artillery role, so we were, were basically an uh, infantry company just doing some patrols around Baghdad. Came back, uh, you know, 2000, yeah, so that was 2008. 2009, I moved to Fort Carson, Colorado, with the First Brigade Combat Team, of 4th ID, and we started training up for another deployment. This time to Afghanistan, so we deployed there 2010, 2011 to Farah, Afghanistan, in the you know the southwestern part of Afghanistan for another tour. It went pretty quick, two years or so uh, of deployment, and out of the five years that I was in, and then decided to take the next step in the next chapter, put some roots down, start a family and get a, what I call, I guess, a regular job.
2: What was it like for you to deploy to Afghanistan, to the country from which they planned the attacks that took your father's life? What was that experience like deploying there?
3: I looked at it more, it's funny because the revenge topic has definitely come up over time and I I always feel like it was more, someone's going to go, right? Someone's going to go, why not shoulder that burden with them if I'm capable? You know, I was always patriotic. I was always interested in the military. I wanted to go to West Point before 9-11. I was just always drawn to that kind of patriotic service, you know, the, the camaraderie, the, the, you know, some of the stuff. And some of it's obviously pretty cool when you grow up watching your movies and stuff like that. And, uh, I always wanted to do some of those things. And sure, there was there was most certainly a, a personal connection to all that. But when you get to West Point, you, you start looking at it from a leadership perspective, It becomes more about, you know, how do I make sure that I could do the best for my guys or, you know, for my soldiers to accomplish the mission, whatever that mission may be. So sometimes it's to go after the bad guys, and sometimes it's to bring aid to a village and hand out soccer balls and and trying to give them electricity, right? So, you know, very, very broad scope in terms of some of the mission sets that we had. But, um, you know, the personal connection was more... I want to make sure that my guys have what they need and that they're going to get brought home safely. But from the perspective of, you know, post 9-11, a lot of the guys that joined were post 9-11 soldiers. I mean, these guys saw what happened to my family and families like mine and said, I want to go serve the country and, and make sure this doesn't happen again. And that to me was the, is the biggest takeaway and something that I'm so proud of is that all these soldiers and and, and airmen and sailors and Marines and everyone that I've met throughout my career and beyond all have a a pretty common feeling about that time, their service, and the reasons why they joined. And to have that personal connection to it was impactful for them and for me.
1: That's absolutely clear. And, you know, you you talk about the people who were affected by it. You talk about the soldiers, the Marines, the airmen, the people who, who you served with and those are the people who stepped up after 9 11 and who were out there defending our values, our freedom, you know, making the world a safer place. One of the things that's been very much in the news lately is, of course, those who fought with us. And you were in Afghanistan. What were the guys like who were by your side? What was your experience Afghans, of working with the Afghans?
3: Yeah, you know, we worked pretty heavily both with the Afghan police and army, as well as Iraq, right, the Iraqi police and Iraqi army.
2: Mm -hmm. You
3: know, I was talking to a couple of friends of mine who were also vets recently about some of this because it's just been such at the forefront of the news and everything going on lately. You know, our partners in a lot of senses were, look, they're instrumental in terms of your day-to-days, like you need an interpreter. We couldn't do what we did without a good interpreter who had our, you know, our best interest in mind and could take what I'm trying to say and make sure that they can understand it and we could communicate on every topic, whether it be on intelligence, on security, and on just basic needs. So without a translator, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, the mission becomes extremely difficult to achieve. You have to be able to communicate with these folks, and you have to be able to understand what their real needs are what their real issues are and this could be anything from gathering intelligence to gathering information about their basic needs and what they need and it all ties together a lot of times so the interpreters are just so important you know we worked with uh, again the afghan army the afghan police iraqi army iraqi police so also look it's it's not a zero sum like in the sense that we're all on the same page there's a learning curve there's sometimes a motivational curve some join for different reasons right I was lucky to work with some great policemen that we had trained and we had brought in that were motivated to kind of do the mission alongside us. There were issues uh, from time to time with, you know, some of the intelligence, like some of it gets out, right? They kind of know which way we're going and maybe there's a couple more IDs on that road. Those things happen as well. But ultimately, our partner forces are supposed to be our allies. They're supposed to be our, you know, the ones that we're looking to hand this over to to make sure that they can do this on their own we spent a lot of time trying to ensure that they were gonna be in the best position to do that whenever the inevitable withdrawal was gonna be. That's gonna be a tough mission no matter what, but the hastiness, I think, at which things are going right now, it seems very confusing to a lot of veterans. What's going on? Why is this being so rushed? I think those are some of the questions that a lot of guys have. Like, we don't understand why. First of all, wasn't there a plan on this? Has anyone discussed how we're gonna do this at some point? And then what's the plan on how to do it going forward now that we're in the situation that we're in? I feel like there's a lot of unanswered questions that a lot of vets, a lot of guys who just, you know, they served and they did the best they could when they were in and accomplished their missions are just very perplexed as to how it's all going down right now.
2: Yeah, understandably. I mean, look, when President Bush told your story, one of the things he said is, I have confidence in the final outcome of the struggle because of the men and women standing before me. And it seems like the final outcome of the struggle now is that the Taliban regime is back in power. I mean, looking back on your service, uh, your sacrifice, how does that make you feel seeing the Taliban back in Kabul, death squads going around after these Afghan translators who worked for you uh, and helped you? What are your thoughts? The timing is uncanny, right? That we're a
3: couple of days away from the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and it's happening right now. That's a bit of a tough pill to swallow. On 9/11, we're going to have the, you know, the Taliban sitting in the former U.S. embassy in Kabul. That's a hard thing to imagine. It's a bit frustrating, I guess. Right? Like, I think the key thing here is that you know nothing's going to be perfect, and these are these are very complicated, you know, macro issues. But when you really start to get into the the whys and the hows, it's like to say that there are Americans left in country. And we're like, sorry, I'm not able to get them out. Sorry, we're, we're It's done. a disgrace. Yeah,
1: we've never seen that.
3: If there's anyone left anywhere, we always go. We always go get them.
1: Yeah, And we're reduced to seeing the people who you fought with on the ground in Afghanistan having to go themselves privately Veterans in order to, to rescue people. We talked to somebody for our podcast last week about that, and it, it's just staggering, really. I have an exit question for you. Just a, a little bit of a reflection. You know, we said it's amazing. It's been 20 years. And, you know, you rightly said, it's sort of an arbitrary moment that people pick just because it's a a round number. But if I think about this, you know, the class that is about to graduate from West Point, or we could pick any university, those men and women, many of them were either infants or barely alive on 9-11. And it's kind of the way that a lot of us feel about Pearl Harbor. It's a distant piece of history. We said never forget, but I I think we said it, but a lot of people have forgotten. What would you say should be the memory that, that people take forward from that day, you know, if you had one piece of counsel about it?
3: Yeah, no, it's a great point, the tagline, "The never forget. It's on every T-shirt, on every pin, on every, uh, you know, uh, any news. It's always never forget. My parting wisdom, if you will, is that remember 9-12. Man, I remember driving down the West Side Highway heading towards Ground Zero to go work. And there was just these strangers standing out there with poster board and American flags just saying, thank you. Thank you, first responders. Thank you, FDNY and NYPD. God bless America, chanting USA. That sense that we were all together as Americans, we realized that this happened to America and that there was good people. There was innocent people. There were heroes that were lost that day. And that feeling that combined patriotism, that sense of community as a nation, is something that I think is missing. And it's, it's wild to see how quickly that can deteriorate. To so us as a family, you know, 19 year reunion or the 21 year anniversary, it's, it's all the same. We deal with it every day and we're gonna deal with it every day. We're actually experiencing it now with, with our kids where my daughter's eight years old, she just saw an image or a video of the plane hitting the tower on TV and she just started doing the math of like, this is what happened. She's like, wait, Grandpa Kevin was in there when that happened and then she saw the building fall like he was under the building. Like that's going to be a part of her history. It's going to be a part of who she is. But as a parent, it's not something you're ever really prepared for having those conversations. I mean, she knew he was just a guardian angel, um, that he was a hero, that he, he was helping people. Like you said, there are these younger folks that were just infants when 9-11 happened who are now deciding to either pick up a rifle or, as my brother did, join the FDNY. I mean, my brother works in the same firehouse that my dad worked in for many years. He works in res- rescue too. So he chose to follow in my father's footsteps and kind of carry the torch. And I think we just got to remember there are proud Americans out there. There are, there are people that care about our country and want to keep it safe. Those are the people that should be celebrated. And as a country, we should just remember what it was like in those days, weeks and months following 9-11, where, you know, we, we felt like we were attacked, but we came together as, as a country for the greater good, not just for America to protect Americans, but also to protect the innocent lives of people in other countries, Afghanistan included.
2: Well, you're you're a family of heroes from your your dad to your brother to you going out and fighting for us. Here's a question for me. How are you going to spend Saturday?
3: Yeah, we're, we have a little routine now. You know, it's it's pretty basic. We get together as a family and we go to my dad's firehouse, Rescue 4. All the you know, members, past and present, come there. If we'll have a little breakfast. We do a moment of silence for each of the uh, you know, major events. So, the, the uh, first plane, the second plane, the Pentagon, uh, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, the collapses. I play the pipes, obviously. And um, we typically, from there, we, do, we take the kids back home and we get together at my mom's house and we have a, a little dinner. We'll pass around a drink, we'll do a toast. Everyone basically says uh, a memory of something that they're you know that they remember about my dad or something that they think he would love to see today, and that's pretty much it. We spend a day together as a family and uh, and just reflect
2: well, we are blessed as a country to have a family like yours to call you fellow Americans. so thank you for your dad's heroism. thank you for, for your, your service, service. And, and your and brothers and your brothers and uh, thank
1: you for joining
3: us,
2: yeah, exactly.
1: Thank we you. will never forget,
2: yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's a
0: pleasure.
2: So, Danny, one thing that struck me there as Patrick was talking about his daughter seeing the planes hit the Twin Towers for the first time on video is that there's this whole generation of people 20 years later who have no living memory the 9-11 attacks. After I left the Bush administration, I gave a lot of campus speeches, and most of the kids were old enough to remember 9-11. As the years went on, there were fewer and fewer in the audience who actually remembered it. I remember being at one event just a couple years ago, and one of the kids told me that his father was a rescue worker at Ground Zero and that his memory of 9-11 was the smell of Ground Zero and his father's clothes when he came back. He didn't have any living memory of it, but he remembered the smell in his father's clothes every day as he came back from Ground Zero, and that never left him. But now even that is gone for a lot of these young people. So, you know, we talked about the principle of never forget. It's words. It's words. And, And, you know, what Patrick said really
1: resonates with me because... Coming up on the anniversary of nine eleven, you know, and and remembering how we did stand together. I mean we really we truly did. And you know, Mark, you were at the Pentagon, I was still on Capitol Hill, as was my husband, and we were dear friends even then. Republicans, Democrats, Americans, foreigners. We all stood together and Yes, it's true that goodwill and that togetherness, that unity dissipated as is inevitable, but it has truly been forgotten. The way that we have sort of callously and wantonly abandoned our allies in Afghanistan is is proof positive of that. And I certainly hope As we look to Capitol Hill and our members of Congress and we look to the White House, I really, really hope that in honor of that sacrifice that was made by so many people, not just on 9-11, those people didn't make a choice to sacrifice their lives. Their families didn't make a choice to sacrifice their families. But for those who served and those who aided us, our allies, our supporters, I hope that we are able to come together a little bit more out of respect, if nothing more, out of respect for them.
2: Well, Patrick's father certainly made a choice to try and help people and rescue people. It was a traumatic day for all of us, but especially for families like Patrick's. And what a privilege it is to get a chance to hear his story and his family's story. And we're so grateful for his service, for his father's service, for his brother's service, and for all the people over the last 20 years in Afghanistan and other places around the world who, you know, in the wake of what's happened, a lot of veterans are wondering, you know, was my service in vain? Was it worth it? What was the sacrifice for they kept us safe for 20 years. The one thing I take away from this 20th anniversary of the September 11 terrorist attacks, we haven't been hit again. And that's because of people like Patrick and their comrades who went and risked their lives to keep us safe.
1: And so the right way for us to end today is to say thank you to each and every one of them, because we all know about Afghanistan. We all know about Iraq but from the firefighters to the members of the armed services to our allies and their armed services and to the people in those countries. And it's not just Iraq and Afghanistan. It's Somalia. It's Yemen. It's in Syria. We have people who are fighting every day the fight that needs to be fought in order to keep the world and our country a safer place. So thank you to them. We remember you.
2: Take care.